Good morning. Christ is risen. What a wonderful gospel text we have today. Thank you. Thank you for that. Ed called me a few months ago now and said he needed me to change from August 7th to August 14th to speak, and now I know why. He didn't want anyone else to have to deal with this text. That word continues, in fact, past where we've stopped. It continues in that same theme of encouragement. After Jesus has said to the crowds that they are hypocrites because they can interpret the weather but not their present times, he asked them, why do you not judge for yourself what is right? When you go with your accuser before a magistrate, on the way, he says, make an effort to settle the case, or you will be dragged before the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Thanks be to God, right? (laughs) Preaching is risky business at best. It's the attempt on the preacher's part to say what the text is saying in such a way that the congregation can hear what God is saying. And it is, as Paul said, a kind of foolishness, because if you know anything about the way humans talk to each other, what you're saying and what people hear are at best tangentially related. Right? I give one sermon, none of you hear that sermon. The sermon that you hear, no one else heard, and I certainly didn't give it. Right? If you love something I say today, it's probably something you took from what I said that I didn't actually say. If you hate what I say today, I probably didn't say that. That's just the way sermons work. And somehow in the chaos of all that, we believe the mystery of God's work is that he speaks to us and that our task is to attend to the text of Scripture and attend to our words as faithfully as we can to hear what it is that God is saying. And that's especially challenging when you have texts like these in which we seem to be hearing something that doesn't fit with what we expect to hear God saying. Do you think I've come to bring peace No, I've come to bring division. The Old Testament reading for the day, Jeremiah 23, is perhaps even more encouraging. Listen to this, Jeremiah 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back, those who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? who prophesy the deceit of their own heart. They plan to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, says the Lord, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. See, therefore, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words from one another. See, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their own tongues and say, says the Lord. See, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, says the Lord, and who tell them and who lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or appoint them, so they do not profit this people at all says the Lord. And again, thanks be to God. Let's pray before we go further. Lord, help us to hear what it is you're saying. And in the chaos of my speaking and our hearing, let your voice be heard. And give us the courage to respond to it faithfully for the good of your work in the world, the good of our neighbor. In Christ and by the Spirit we pray. 
Amen. But what sense does it make to talk about a God who is against us in this way? 1,700 years ago, Augustine, bishop in South Africa, is preaching from this, North Africa, is preaching from this text. And he says of this text, God is the adversary who threatens to throw us in prison until we've paid the last penny. What does it mean to talk about God as our adversary? God being against us. Scripture says God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what if God is the one who's against you? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I've come not to bring peace, but division? Everything you would think about the promise of Jesus is that he is a peace bringer. He is, we say, the prince of peace. In Luke's gospel, the first prophecy about Jesus is that he will be the light that leads us into the way of peace. When he's born, the angel, the angelic hosts sing, peace on earth. And yet he says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. The kind of division that separates families. The kind of division that turns fathers against sons, and sons against fathers, and mothers against daughters, and mothers-in-law against their daughters-in-law. What does that mean? How are we to hear that as good news? The key, I think, is to recognize that the againstness is in service of the forness. He is only against us because he is ultimately for us. He's against us the way that parents are against their children for their children's good. He's against us in the way that physicians are against patients for the patient's good. He is against us Because we are destroying ourselves. And this is what St. Augustine said 1,700 years ago. God will be your adversary as long as you are destroying yourself. God will be your adversary as long as you are destroying yourself. If you, like a little child, are like a sick patient who doesn't know what's best for himself or herself, God will do what you need, even if it's not what you want, until you recognize that's what you wanted anyway. That's the good news. That God will be against us because he is for us. And so we start to see that his wrath, and God is wrathful, his wrath is nothing but my experience of his love overcoming my resistance to what he wants for me. Because what he wants for me is what I want for myself that I don't know I want for myself yet. That's what his good will is for me. When he gets his will for me, it's what I want. But because of sin... I don't know what I want for myself yet. I think I do, but I don't really know what I want for myself. And the process of conversion, of discipleship, of sanctification is the process of letting go of what I think I want for myself and being grasped by what he wants for me and being willing to open myself up to that in that way, to know that When God sets himself against me, it's because he is for me. He loves me too much to let me destroy my own life and the life of my neighbor without resistance. He loves me too much to stand by and watch me wreck myself by my own dreams. You know what what Jeremiah says to the prophets? You're prophesying the deceit of your own hearts. And God is wanting to separate out what my heart has to say about me from what he says about me. There's this beautiful passage in 1 John where he says... If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. That the task of being formed into Christ's likeness, the task of becoming a faithful Christian, is the task of learning to ignore my heart and hear his heart for me. Learning to say no to what I say about myself and what I say about you, and say yes to what he says about me and what he says about you. As we say in my tradition, I'm preaching better than you're shouting at this point. 
You, you can start to make sense of what Jesus is doing here, I think, what this means. If you go to the end of this gospel, Jesus has died, he's been buried, he's resurrected, he appears to two disciples on their way home, then he appears to Peter in Jerusalem, and then all of the disciples are gathered together talking about these appearances of Jesus, and Jesus appears to all of them at once, and he speaks a word to them. He says, peace. And you know what their response is? And they were all terrified and afraid. So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears speaking peace, and their response is terror. And he says, no, don't be afraid. It's me. Look at my wounds. It's me. I've come out the other side of death. And then it says, and their joy was mingled with fear and disbelief. The best scenario was at least there was some joy mingled with their disbelief and their terror. Because when the peace of God comes, it's so good we don't know how to make sense of it. And it's so at odds with what we've done for ourselves that we're not, we're not able to recognize it for the goodness that it is. You know, the, the promise in Ephesians that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above beyond all that we could ask or think. That sounds like a great promise until you realize that whatever God purposes for your life is something you don't even have the imagination to pray for. Whatever you're praying for for your future isn't what God is going to do. Because what God is going to do, you don't know to pray for. It's beyond what you can ask or think. But that means when it comes, it comes into your life as something you couldn't have expected, anticipated, or even asked for. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Because we make false peace all around us, all the time. We make pacts. We make allegiances. We make contracts. We find ways of having a kind of peace that gives us a sense of control. And then God comes and unsettles all of that and says, no, I want you to have real peace not the peace you've made for yourself. And it's incredibly disruptive. This is the language of fire and hammer. The fire that Jeremiah is talking about is the fire that burns off the field so you can plant again in the future in fresh, healthy soil. It's the hammer he's talking about is the hammer that shatters the rock that's in the way so that you can build on level ground. The word of God, when it's preached faithfully, is a word that destroys what we are making of our lives so he can make what he wants of our lives for our good. That's how you know you're in a community where the gospel is being preached. Your life is being disrupted by what's being said. If you're only hearing what you've already said to yourself, it's not the word of God. It's just your own heart speaking back to you. If everything God seems to be saying is what I would say to myself anyway, it's just me talking to myself. Because when God speaks, he says what I could never think to say to myself. That I, I couldn't dare to imagine that future for myself. And I wouldn't give myself those kinds of responsibilities for my, mate, my neighbor if it were up to me. And yet, he speaks life to me. A life that I have a difficult time recognizing as life until I step into it and let it destroy all of my illusions. All of those illusions of control. All of those illusions that I know what to do with my life and what it means. And so we pray for God's word to come like fire and like hammer. And that's, and that's what Jesus is saying. I've come to bring fire to the earth. I am the hammer of God shattering everything you've made for yourself. Because the kingdom of God comes and unmakes the kingdoms of this world. And what is it that he's against? What is it that he's actually destroying? In Luke's gospel, what he's destroying is hypocrisy. Now, we're likely to think hypocrisy is when you're being two-faced. 
where you're pretending to be something that you, in fact, aren't. But in Luke's gospel, hypocrisy works a bit differently. Did you notice what Jesus said to the crowds? You predict the weather perfectly. Apparently, they had skills that contemporary weathermen <laughs> do not. They, they were predicting the weather faithfully, he says. You're, you're right. You know when the wind is going to blow and when it's going to be hot. He says, but you don't know the, time, the times, your, your present time. You don't know the times you live in. You're hypocrites. Hypocrisy for Jesus is when you have the ability to read the weather, but you can't see the things that matter most that are happening in the world around you. You don't recognize what matters most. Even though you have the basic skills needed to interpret, you don't bring those skills to bear on the things that matter most. And we see this played out so vividly in the very next chapter in the story of Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Luke 13, he's teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he sees a woman who for almost 20 years has been bent over by this oppressing illness. She has an oppressive spirit that has bent her over. And Jesus calls her to him and says, be loosed. You're freed from this. And you would think that this would be a moment of rejoicing, that Jesus has delivered this woman from this oppression, from this illness. And yet the response is the synagogue ruler, and apparently everyone else in the synagogue says, this is the Sabbath day. You've got six other days to do healing. What are you doing, Jesus? We're trying to have church here. Like we, we, this is serious. This is synagogue worship. If you want to heal that woman, do it outside or do it on another day. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, do you not realize that she is a daughter of Abraham? Do you not see her? Do you, not, you're, you see how to have church, but you don't see her. I wonder how many times we've been concerned about doing church right and we haven't seen people and God is actually moving on them, but all we're concerned about is, hey, this is, this is the way we do church. This is the order we need. This is how things are supposed to happen. That's hypocrisy for Jesus. You can read the weather. You know how to observe the Sabbath day, but you don't recognize when God is present and your neighbor is present. Jesus said, really, all that matters is you love God and you love neighbor. Everything else is meaningless if you don't love God and love neighbor. And hypocrisy is mastering everything else and not loving God and loving your neighbor. What good is it if we are able to read the stock market, read pop culture trends, have a sense of the political developments, and we can't see the person right in front of us as the son or daughter of Abraham? Nothing matters if you don't see everyone you encounter as someone God has claimed for you to love. Nothing else matters. No other skill matters. The only thing that really matters is that I recognize the times of my visitation. I recognize when God is present working and my neighbor is in need. That's, that's what matters. I was watching a Netflix show a few, few weeks ago, Chef's Table. Any of you watch that? No? You should. If you get nothing else out of the sermon, you get a Netflix recommendation. In the first service, I made a Netflix and chill joke that scandalized a bunch of people, so I won't make that again. If you don't know why that's scandalous, you can ask some people about it. But you should watch the show anyway. Like, really, watch the show, Chef's Table. Season two is a story, I think it's the first episode, of season two, it's a story about a chef who gets mouth cancer and loses, through the course of treatment, loses the ability to taste his work. And he becomes the chef who can't taste and actually be becomes renowned 
as a conceptual chef. So he continues to do work, but he's no longer able to be in the kitchen tasting his food. But months pass, maybe more than a year, I can't remember exactly, but a long time passes, and slowly he starts to get some ability to sense back. And he said that what he could, all he could sense at first is salt. And he said, no matter what I was eating, all I could tell you was how salty it was. I couldn't taste anything else. And I'm watching that, and I have this kind of epiphany. That's the world you and I live in. We live in a world in which people can only taste one thing. You've heard the old proverb, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You need to help me develop the, a pithy version of this. In the kingdom in which everyone can only taste salt, the chef who makes the saltiest meal is king. See, that's not nearly as pithy, but I need something like that. So if you can work that up and tweet it at me, I would appreciate it. Because, because here's the thing. I think we live in a culture in which we've become people addicted to simplicities. We become people who think one thing matters. I just heard a sermon last week. Make God your number one priority. Nothing else matters. For years in churches that I grew up in, we were one-issue voters. One thing mattered. Nothing else mattered. Right? This is the one thing that, that mattered. And, and then we wonder why we get public intellectuals and political figures and pastors who are one-note people. All they can do is make salty meals. And even when people make meals that have all kinds of taste, and we sit down at the table, all we can tell is whether or not it's salty. And sometimes the problem isn't with the meal, it's with the eater. Sometimes there's a whole lot of stuff going on here, but I don't have the palate to appreciate everything that's going on. And this is, I think, where we are culturally, in our churches, in our institutions, pop culture, highbrow culture, right across the board. American life now is a life of salty taste only. And if we want really salty food, we seek out really salty chefs. And if we don't want much salt in our food, we seek out chefs who give us food that isn't that salty. But what the Lord wants is for us to realize there's a lot more to taste than that. The goodness of God is breaking forth on every side, and we should attend to all of it. God is acting. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is acting right now in your life, in my life, in wondrous ways. I need to see it. I need to recognize it. And evil is breaking out on every side. There is destruction and brokenness and disease on every side. And I need to see it and call it what it is. But to do that, I have to give up my sense of judgment. I have to recognize that I don't understand what's going on in my own life, much less in yours. And that it's time for me to let the fire of the Lord's word and the hammer of the Lord's word shatter my opinions about myself and about you. Because we have to realize you cannot live the Christian life from your opinions. We're, we're people who trust our opinions far too much. You have opinions. I have opinions. They don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. What God wants is for us to know the truth and to be truthful people. And the only way to get from what are my opinions to his truth is to let him crucify what I think I understand so he can resurrect his truth in me. I have to die to myself. What does that mean if it isn't die to my interpretation of myself? I don't have the final word on my own life, much less on yours. What God is doing in my life is more than I can ask or think. How could I possibly read it all? Margaret Gaines, a dear friend of 
Jonathan and someone I came to know through him, I heard her say this once, and I think about this all the time. She said, I am not the architect of my own life. I'm a day laborer in what God is doing in me. Do you understand what she's saying? I can't see what God can see about my life or about your life. So I can't pretend to know everything that needs to be known. And I have to live from that place of recognizing that what holds me is not my grasp of the truth, but God's grasp of me. Paul says, I am reaching forward to lay hold of that which has laid hold of me. The good news is not that I grasp God. It's that God grasps me. The good news is not that I understand something. It's that I'm understood. When I don't understand anything, there is one who understands me. And I can rest in that. And if we're going to break free of the disease that's racking our culture, if we're going to break free of the bondage that is holding us in slavery, we have to be willing to let our opinions be destroyed. God is against us trusting our judgment in that way. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Let him direct your path. One more example, and I'll be done. The novel, Silence, Shizaku Endo tells a story about a priest in Japan, a Christian missionary priest, who's finally come to the place where he realizes he's going to be tortured and killed for his faith and for his witness. And he's struggling to remain faithful. And he's in a cell, a small cell, a cramped cell, And it's the middle of the night, and here's the snoring of the guards, and he finally snaps. And he starts screaming out at the guards to wake up. He can't stand that they're sleeping and resting, knowing he's going to die the next morning. He's so angry, and finally he lets out all of this anger toward God. Like, God, how could you let this happen? And then the guard walks up to the cell and says, that's not snoring. That's the sound of your fellow Christians as they're being suffocated and tortured to death. And there's this moment of realization that the priest has that becomes his salvation. That his own selfish concern made it so that he heard what was actually the cry of sufferers as the indifference of his oppressors. He thought it was the guards sleeping away the night that he was going, was going to be his last night, when in fact it was his brothers and sisters dying for him. And I read that and read it again recently, and all I can think is how many times in my life have I been angry at God or angry at someone else because I thought I was hearing indifference. But that's what, not what was really going on at all. Because the more we become sensitized to what God is actually doing, the more we recognize the times of our visitation, we realize that what we are hearing, what we're sensing, isn't in fact the truth of what's going on. And what God wants to do is be against us long enough to sensitize us to what's actually going on. And if we could see what's actually going on, we would be shattered by the brokenness of our neighbors, and we would be overjoyed at the goodness of God. And our lives would be lives that are caught up at the same time in sorrow and in joy. But until we open up in that way, we live lives that are numbed, desensitized, narrowed, flattened, in which we're just trying to get by without noticing what's happening. And the word of the Lord to us, I think, is I'm against that. I didn't call you to live that kind of life. I didn't call you to be those kinds of people. 
And he will be against every version of our faith that allows us to ease through life as if we don't have responsibility for our neighbors. He will be against any form of our faith that allows us to ease through life without agony in prayer or rejoicing in praise. Because our God is a living God who is coming to save this broken world from itself and from the enemy of it. And he calls us to share in that work. And so we pray, God, come like fire. Come like a hammer. Burn away everything that is unclean in me. Cleanse away, clear away every impediment that you need to clear away to build your work in my life. Help us to sense our responsibility for our neighbors. Help us to know the times of our visitation, to know when you are here, to know when our neighbor is here. And God, help us to live with the kind of openness that welcomes you to be against us so we can know what it means for you to be for us in the deepest, deepest way. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.